Well, last week I was in Hollywood. I was visiting my niece, and we went on all the fun tours. Um, went to go see the stars. We went to see where the stars hung out. We went to Universal Studios. We went to Venice Beach, which has something called Muscle Beach. And I realized at that moment that I'm not as ripped as my wife thinks I am. (laughs) It was really cool. We went to Universal Studios. We saw where movies are made. And yet Hollywood is not all about fun. Hollywood is pitting themselves against life. You probably heard that Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed into law a new heartbeat bill. And what Hollywood is doing, all the major studios are doing, is boycotting that state because of this bill on abortion. And so we see the injustice of our world celebrated. But is it just in the world? It's in the church as well. I recently read a report on slavery and racism in the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you're not aware, we are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and our flagship seminary has a history of racism. I read that the seminary supported the Confederacy's cause to preserve slavery. Joseph E. Brown, the seminary's most important donor and chairman of its board of trustees, earned much of his fortune by the exploitation of mostly black convict lease laborers. This is a seminary that's a part of us. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, the seminary faculty appealed to science to support their belief in white superiority. Is injustice just in the world? No, it's touched the church as well. And when I read this, my heart was so grieved. It it made me cry out, is there justice anywhere? I read recently that over 50,000 children and women are sexually trafficked every year in America. Every single year. And while they're trying to bring criminal charges against many of those who buy the services of these children, oftentimes they're not convicted because they look like us, they dress like us, and they have a lot of money. We look at the injustices of the world and we cry out with the preacher. Is not life utterly meaningless because of injustice? So many in our culture are crying out, is not life utterly meaningless because there is no justice anywhere? That's why I love the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes gives us an honest path from cynicism to faith. The Bible's not just a book of cliche sayings that helps you have a better attitude. Instead, the Bible looks at the Genesis 3 reality of sin in the world and is honest about it. So we can look 
we can look at the Bible not as chicken soup for the soul, but as a God who's experienced all the pain and turmoil and injustice of this world and has given us a word of hope. So let's, let's join the preacher this morning. And when I say join the preacher, I don't mean me. Although I do want you to join me. I mean the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Let's look at verse 16. First we see that the preacher laments injustice in the courts. He laments injustice in the courts. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, why does the author go to justice at this part of the book? Well, if you remember in Genesis, or in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, he's talked about God's sovereignty over all things. How all things are in God's hand. All the timing of every part of this universe is in God's hand. So, it's natural then to think a sovereign God... What about injustice? Both the Hebrew words here used for justice and righteousness have judicial overtones. So most likely, when he says the place of justice and the place of righteousness, he's talking about the courtroom. He's talking about the place at the gate where people would go to the elders of the community and seek justice for their cause. But the irony is that in the very place where God has ordained That wrongs be made right. In that very place, there is wickedness. And is there not injustice in our courts today? There's the racialization of American incarceration. One out of 17 white men will end up in prison. One out of three black men will. You think about our attacks on the Sri Lankan brothers and sisters in Christ. Months ago, where 257 people are killed, the authorities knew it was going to happen, and they did nothing. Or you could think about the place of righteousness as the church. Over 200 Southern Baptist pastors, youth pastors, and deacons serving in the place of righteousness were convicted for sex crimes over the past 20 years, leaving behind over 700 victims. Even in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. Maybe you were brought up in an abusive home. The very man who was supposed to protect you and care for you did quite the opposite. And your life has never been the same. Maybe you've been a part of a church that's supposed to point you to Jesus, but they've they've pointed you to something far different. We know there's so much hurt in this church because of injustice. So we cry out, we cry out with the preacher, is not life utterly meaningless because of injustice? It's everywhere. Let's look at verses 18 through 22, where the author continues to plead for us to recognize the injustice 
of this fallen world. He, I said in my heart, we're skipping over verse 17 for a reason. We're going to get back to that. So starting in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. It's interesting, the preacher was just complaining about injustice, and now he's mourning the fact that there is justice in death. The wages of sin is death. The reason God is testing us is that he's showing us his judgment in death. That's so true of our human hearts, isn't it? We don't want justice for ourselves. We want justice outside. But when it comes to us, we want mercy. Do you hear the cry of our heart in Ecclesiastes? At one level, we want justice. At another level, the last thing we want is justice. You see a cry here for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the attitude of this generation. This is is what drives our culture, this nihilism. This thought that there's really nothing after this life. We're really not that different from the animals. So it shouldn't be surprising that we die like the animals. Can you hear the author groaning in this verse? Who knows? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or wherever? I don't know. Who can bring man to see what will be after him? What the author is doing here is helping us see the absolute despair of a worldview without God. He's helping us recognize That though modern secular thought says that this is the way to be progressive, actually it's the way to meaningless, meaninglessness. If there is nothing beyond this life, Ecclesiastes is exactly right when it says vanity of vanities, all is vanities. And most of your neighbors that you live next to believe exactly that. They wouldn't say that, but the author is going to convince us this morning that if you don't believe in the judgment of God, this life is meaningless. It absolutely is meaningless. If the spirit of a man does not go somewhere after death with no reckoning for what happens in this life, then we do cry out, is not life utterly meaningless because of injustice? That's the cry of our souls, isn't it? We can resonate with this. 
We've all been at places in our life where we, at the bottom of our soul, question, life feels so meaningless. I pursue righteousness and there's injustice. We have a friend here in the author. We also see the injustice for the powerless in verses 1 through 3. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And here are probably the two most cynical thoughts you could have in your whole life. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But he goes even deeper. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. No comfort, no power to change circumstances. No one to help, not able to help themselves. I've been reading a book this week that one of my friends wrote on slavery in America. And it has caused my heart to do what we're hearing here in Ecclesiastes. Where little children in slave ships would almost drown in the excrement because it was so high. And these children were there on the boats for months. Ten-year-old girls separated from their family, raped by their master for generations. And Christians having a complicit attitude at times. When you take an honest look at the world, your heart cries out, is there any meaning to this? And if you don't have God and his judgment in view, it's absolutely meaningless. And that's the despair of the culture that we're in today. No comfort, no power. Injustice is so bad that it seems death is even desirable. The dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living. There's a series on Netflix called 13 Reasons Why. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically it is the story of a teenage girl who gives 13 different reasons why she thinks it's a good idea to commit suicide. And... It's created a lot of controversy, especially because the uptick in teen suicide went up the months after it came out. So even among our youth, they're drinking this cynicism, that there is no reason to stay alive. If my life is not what I think it should be, there's no good reason to live. And so a lot of our teens are drinking in this despair. 
Suicide is the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 24. And this, this statistic blew my mind. Each day in our nation, so today, in the U.S., there will be an average of over 3,000 attempts by young people grades 9 through 12 to kill themselves. Just today. I met with the 9th through 12th graders this morning. It was wonderful, and I can't imagine the youth, the vibrancy, wanting to take their life because they have not sat at the door of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. See, the preacher meets us in our cynicism, but then gives us an honest road back to God. You know what's strange? Well, it's not strange when you understand why. But there are two times where Jesus says, it's better that this person would die, and it's better if this person would never have been born. Is Jesus just as cynical as the author of Ecclesiastes? In Matthew 18, 6, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's Jesus. Or even even more chilling, when talking about Judas and his denial, it says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Is Jesus just as cynical as our generation? What we're going to see is that what Jesus is alluding to there, the judgment of God, is the very reason that we have hope is the very reason that this life does have meaning. Part of, the, part of the groan of injustice is that it's not just something that we could take care of politically, is it? It's something that's borne out in our hearts. Look at verses 4 through 12. Then I saw... That all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. That's not going to create a just society, is it? A society that's pushed along by envy of neighbor? No wonder there's injustice. Our hearts are wicked and full of envy. Skip down to verse 8. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Our sinful hearts are never content no matter how much we get. That's a reality. And it's that discontent that creates injustice in our society. So the problem is a lot deeper than a political fix. Part of the groaning of injustice is that the roots of it come from our wicked hearts. We see it in selfishness. 
We labor so much for ourselves that we ask for who am I, or we don't even ask for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure. We live in a world of injustice because we live in a world of Genesis 3. We live in a world where sin has come in. And what Ecclesiastes is doing here is giving us an honest look of the way things actually are. And it's so refreshing because we all feel this way sometimes. We need to be met in our cynicism and drawn out into hope. And that's the goal of the preacher in this book. I love the Bible because I could sit down with an unbeliever and read Ecclesiastes and there could be some really good discussion about injustice in the world. And they would recognize that, wow, the Bible is actually related to this earth. It's not just nice platitudes about some other place. It can look directly into this world. And finally, there's no long-term solution to injustice. We see that in verses 13 through 16. There's no long-term solution to injustice, at least if our view is from under the sun. We haven't got to above the sun yet. We're still underneath the sun. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice So in the following verses, the preacher relates an instance he observed of how the results of wisdom in politics can be fleeting. In contrast to an old and foolish king, there once was a poor and wise youth who managed to rise above his humble beginnings and ascend to the throne and have an influential reign. So here you see you have foolish kings who aren't going to bring about justice. And then when you do have wisdom... When you do have a political leader who's going to bring justice, what happens? Later generations will not rejoice in him. His success and influence, though gained by true wisdom, will not last. So vote wisely in 2020, but don't put your hope there. You can have the best presidential candidate in the world, and yet he's going to die someday, and then they're going to vote for the other party, or this party, or that party. We can't put our hope in politics with injustice. Is not life utterly meaningless because of injustice? Now, let's go back to verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for... There's a time for every matter and for every work. The preacher preaches to himself. I said in my heart. He gives himself a perspective from above the sun. And this is what we need to do, beloved. When we see the injustice of this world and are tempted towards cynicism and to look away and just kind of be in our own little place where we don't have to deal with the injustices of the world, What we're called to do is have a view above the sun and speak to our heart that God will judge. God will judge. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. 
God's judgment is the only satisfying answer to injustice. You look at this whole section and the only answer given is the judgment of God. In fact, God's judgment is the very foundation for the whole point of this book. In 12, 13 through 14, it says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. So he's, he's landing the plane, and he says this, And all my cynical tirades and all this depressing talk, this is what I've been trying to tell you the whole time. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Life isn't meaningless, for God will bring every deed into judgment with everything, whether good or evil. The whole point of the book rests on this reason, that God will bring every deed into judgment. You take that out of this book, Vanity of vanities, absolutely, absolutely right. Jesus talked about God's judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus taught us that it is the justice of the next world we must fear most, not the injustice of this world. The book of Revelation gives a robust description of God's ultimate judgment. Listen to Revelation 14. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now this is not a very (laughs) palatable part of scripture, is it? Not for our modern senses. That's usually not one of our fighter verses that we memorize. Probably not the first verse that we use in evangelism. I don't think it's in their little Romans road track. But what the author is saying here in Ecclesiastes is that description of God's judgment is what gives this life meaning. Because the holiness of God is such that every sin needs to be punished and every injustice will be made right because of the justice of God. We see a reason in this verse of why there's injustice now. You see it there at the end it says for there's a time for every matter and for every work. For there's a time for every matter and for every work. Do you remember that in chapter 3? There's a time for everything. God has a carefully timed plan, but we cannot know when it will be executed. Part of the difficulty of living in this life is not knowing when the judgment of God will come. All we have right now to see is mainly injustice. And yet, 
this verse is saying there is an appointed time. And at just the right time, God will bring his judgment. A recent report commissioned by the British Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, has highlighted the extent of global persecution of Christians. This blew me away. In the Middle East, the population of Christians used to be about 20%. Now it's 5 5%. The level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to the definition, the international definition of genocide. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. The forms of persecution range from discrimination in education, employment, social life, kidnapping, murder, attacks against Christian communities... It makes us cry out with the martyrs in Revelation, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Will, when will this injustice be done? And yet Paul tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will, I will repay. So beloved, is not life utterly meaningless because of injustice? Meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful because God will one day vindicate the righteous and punish the guilty. That's his answer. Meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful because God will one day vindicate the righteous and punish the guilty. That's good news only in one way, isn't it? <laughs> I don't want that justice. I really don't want that justice. Which is what makes what we're about to celebrate so beautiful. What we're about to do, according to scripture, is proclaim publicly to one another, visibly, that our judgment has already taken place. This judgment that gives meaning to the world, that will right every wrong has already happened on your behalf on the cross. You've already been judged. Your judgment is over. It is past in Christ. When Jesus died, he took your judgment. That is the judgment of God. When he said, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? That's your cry. That's your cry of God abandoning you because you are united to Christ. And so God will never abandon you now. Listen to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words... 
as we break those little pieces of bread, it's a reminder to us that God already judged you. Your judgment already took place through the breaking of Christ's body. So as you take the bread this morning, remember that. That this awful justice of God will not come to you. It has already fallen on Christ. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I love that word, new. The old has passed, the new has come. We talked about this with the teenagers this morning. We are now new creations in Christ. And the new creation has already started in us, in our own hearts, because we now have a love for Jesus. And yet we look around and we see injustice in the world, but we await a world where there will be complete justice and mercy. Because justice and mercy met at the cross. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you realize that when you take communion, we all become preachers? We're all proclaiming the death of Jesus by taking these elements to show one another that God's judgment has happened. And my last application, exhortation is, we have so many people around us who don't know that. They are living a meaningless life. They are taking their life because they don't see any meaning. And they have no idea that what awaits them is the judgment of God. Brothers and sisters, let's plead with God this year that he would give us a heart for evangelism. This is good news. God has placed us in the lives of unbelievers to share this incredibly good news, that this life is full of meaning. God will make every wrong right. And guess what? He'll also take your payment for sin so you don't have to pay for your wrong. Is there a better message in the world? Dan, would you come up and lead us in communion?